to be done there. But for me, the appropriate leveraging of technology, getting back to the question, is to simply exchange information as accurately and as efficiently as possible. Anything outside of that, I think you tread into really dangerous waters. So digital technology for entertainment, uh, digital technology for community, um, for communion, you know, digital technology as the church. I mean, all of those things, they fall short. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Deep Conversation with pastor, author, and podcaster, J.Y. Kim. Do you need to physically attend a worship service or is streaming online sufficient? Technology has already been really influencing how we do church, but COVID accelerated everything. And with online church growing, it begs the question, is that a good thing? Some say it is. It's fine. It's great. It expands our outreach. But is it really church if we're not actually physically together? Doesn't church need to be embodied And that leads us to an entirely different question. How should we view technology? And how is it forming us? That and much more is what we're going to be talking about today. Jay serves as the lead pastor of teaching at Westgate Church in Silicon Valley of California and is the teacher and resident at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. He's also on the leadership team at the Regeneration Project, where he co-hosts the Regeneration Podcast. Some of his written work has been featured in Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, Relevant, Missio Alliance, Outreach, Pastor Resources, and other places. He is the author of Analog Church, which came out from InterVarsity in 2020, actually right in the midst or at the very beginning of the pandemic. And it talks about the many challenges and opportunities churches face in the digital age. And he tries to offer a, a new and hopeful way forward. He has a new book coming out in July 2022 called The Analog Christian, a companion to Analog Church. Jay is married with two young kids and calls the Silicon Valley of California home. This is a very relevant question to where we're at today, and it's one that I think all of us need to really think deeply about because Technology has changed how we do things, but we have to ask ourselves the question, is that a good thing or do we need to have some other mindset entirely? How do we view technology? How do we view online church? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Happy listening. Jay Kim, welcome to Apollos Watered. Thanks, Travis. I'm uh, pumped. Not as pumped as you, but I'm pumped. To be. <laughs> well, I'm on my like fifth cup of coffee. There so you go. I'm a happy guy. Okay, here we go. Are you ready for the fast five? I, I don't know, but let's do it. All right. So you're in the Silicon Valley. Just got to ask this question, but are you a Mac or PC guy? I'm a Mac guy. Oh, I knew I liked you. <laughs> I knew I liked you. All right. But you're also in Silicon Valley. So here we go. LeBron or Steph Curry? Come on, man. What kind of question is that? Do I have to answer? I mean, it's Steph 10 times. I've been a Warriors fan since the dreadful late 80s. So like I've TMC? Been, like pre before we drafted Mitch Richmond. And uh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've been through the dark, the dark years. So Warriors through and through, Steph Curry, the greatest Golden State Warrior of all time. That's that's a huge statement, but he is. He is yeah. a phenomenal, phenomenal player. But yeah. you guys have had some bad luck in the past couple of years, but we'll see. Yeah, that's okay. We'll We're coming back. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Third one. One thing people don't know about me is. I uh, played the violin when I was a kid for 10 years. And uh, awesome. but I but I've lost it all. I'm terrible. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. That's impressive. 
Not really. Not really. <laughs> okay. Number four, strangest or weirdest food you have ever eaten. Oh man. Um, I had, I was in Africa, Nairobi, Africa once. And, uh, I guess it's not that strange, but it was weird. I ate zebra zebra meat when I was in Africa. I didn't think, I didn't know that that was legal. I still don't know if it's legal, but it was, <laughs> it was in a restaurant. I didn't order it. It just came out. And, uh, <laughs> How did you know a zebra? Did it have the marks or something? No, no. They tell you. Yeah, it was like, uh, it's it's a yeah, no, 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 no. It was a restaurant. <laughs> I think it's still there. I think it's still there. It's a restaurant called Carnivore, which is in Nairobi. It is a Brazilian barbecue style restaurant where they come out and oh. they tell you what is and then they cut it out and so um there were lots of strange things i mean it was the first time i ever had uh alligator meat was there snake i had several different types of snake and then zebra which was very strange but uh quite delicious to be honest really yeah not bad oh i <laughs> i have no idea what to do with that there's a part of me that wants to admit it and there's a part of me it's like I don't, I don't think I could do it. Okay. Well, taking that into consideration, here we go. Number five, if you were to be a restaurant, what restaurant would you be and why? Man, that's a great question. Uh, I am going to say like an actual restaurant that exists. Yeah. yeah. Or you can make something up. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would be a mom and pop donut shop. That's what I would be, you know, like, corner here in the silicon valley there is a donut shop called stan's donuts everybody listening if you're ever in san jose california stan's donuts they open at 6 a.m the lines start at 5 30 a.m and uh, the yeah it's like i mean the only comparable donut other than stan's is a place called dough in brooklyn new york so i'm a big donut guy i don't eat many donuts because just i'm older now and for health reasons <laughs> if, if i could have it my way it'd be donuts three square meals a day so that's that's probably what i'd be stan's don't i've heard of stan's donuts is it a chain uh, yeah uh it's not a chain i mean there's probably stan's donuts all over but the stan's donuts here there's only one and uh it's phenomenal yeah phenomenal Okay. I'm going to have to look that up if I ever get out there. Okay. Well, I, I also have to know this and we're going to talk about your book, Analog Church. I've got it right here. Here's my copy. And J.Y. Kim, what's the Y stand for? Uh, my Korean name, which is Yoon. Yoon. So there you go. Yeah. Oh, very nice. And it's, it's with a, how do you spell that? Y-O-O-N. Y-O-O-N. Okay. Yoon. Nice. All right. Well, let's talk about this. Analog Church. What was the what was the purpose? Actually, before we get to the purpose of that, let's hear your story. Tell us a bit more about yourself than what we read on the back part of the book. Yeah. I mean, there's not much to tell. It's kind of quite uh, underwhelming. I, uh, I've, I've been here in the Silicon Valley basically my entire life. I wasn't born here. I was actually born in a city called Incheon in South Korea, but I moved here with my mom uh, before I can remember. I was really young. And by here, I mean here, Silicon Valley. So mm -hmm. I've been here, you know, almost 40 years now and uh, never left. I mean, I left um, for little stretches here and there, but basically have been a lifelong Silicon Valleyite. And uh, yeah, I'm married to my best friend, Jenny. We've been married 12 years, got a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. So we're like right in the throes of having a first grader now. And just, that's a whole different thing we're trying to figure out. Um, and uh, yeah, like I already shared with you my deep, deep love for the Golden State Warriors. So uh, that's, that's one thing. Um, yeah. And I serve uh, as a pastor on staff at a church here in San Jose uh, called Westgate Church. And have been in, you know, local church ministry for going on almost 20 years now. Um, did youth ministry and college ministry for a long time, was a church planter. And now I, I serve on the leadership team of our church here. So there you go. Well, I've heard you're a pretty phenomenal teacher. So you're oh. the teaching guy and uh, you've got some, I mean, you can obviously tell that from a writing, you're a great writer. And wow. I, I really enjoyed the book after reading through it. I went analog church, the title caught my eye and I thought, wow, not too many people are talking about this kind of thing. What was the impetus behind writing analog church? 
Yeah. I mean, it started years ago. Mostly I was asking questions of um, technologies sort of formational impact on me just as a person, primarily like as a dad and as a husband, I just found myself like many of us do um, chained to this little device in my back pocket. I'd be in the presence of the people I love most on the planet and yet totally lost and immersed in this little digital device. So I started asking myself like, what is happening? I mean, beyond just my own lack of discipline and implementing practices and disciplines to make sure that that didn't happen or to minimize that, I started just getting really curious about neurologically, you know, how this was shaping my own desires. I mean, I was clearly addicted. And so I became fascinated with that whole thing. Like, how does, you know, I mean, I know about addiction to alcohol and to drugs Mm -hmm. and pornography or whatever, but it was like, you know, this benign, seemingly benign thing, like a phone. I was like, how am I addicted to this? You know? And so I just started doing a lot of reading, a lot of um, having a lot of conversations with friends and with mentors about it. And that led me down the path of asking the question, well, this can't be just me. And the statistics bear it out that it's not just me. And it's lots of people. And, And then beyond that, you know, as a pastor on staff at a church, I started looking around and realizing, oh, this is happening at sort of a communal ecclesiological level, that we're leaning hard and fast into all things digital because there's so there's so many shiny new toys. And we were just kind of couching all of our digital proclivities ecclesiologically in the language of, you know, reach and impact. And I felt like we weren't asking enough questions about formation and how this stuff, not, not how it's allowing us to have more reach or more impact, that's fine, but we, I felt like we weren't asking enough of the questions about how this stuff was forming us. Mm-hmm. And if it's forming me and it's forming all of us, it certainly must be forming us communally and ecclesiologically. So then I just started going down that rabbit trail and reading and having lots of conversations and jotting some of my thoughts down, running some of my thoughts by, you know, people, friends I respect and admire. And, uh, and then I realized as I was searching for um, content out there where I could sort of, you know, think more deeply and broadly about this stuff, there was a lot being written about the impact of the digital age on us um, individually mm-hmm. and a lot being written about how it's impacting society as a whole. But I found that there was really almost nothing written about how it was impacting the church specifically. And so um, I just thought, man, no one's written about it. I'm thinking about it. Maybe I'll write about it. And uh, there you go. There it is. And it's interesting how the Holy Spirit does things because you you wrote this book. And at the same time, I came across, came across two other books that you wrote a recommendation for, uh, hmm. Virtual Reality Church which you wrote something for that, John Arms, um, which is uh, Armstrong and Bach wrote that one. And then uh, Brett McCracken's The Wisdom Pyramid. Wow. So so now I'm just thinking you write forwards, but those are, how many forwards have you written on this stuff? It's like you become the expert on it. Yeah, I am. I am far from the expert. What I tell people is that I I hope that my book is a uh, helpful first word but not the last word. My book is, is very early. Uh, it's, it's, uh, first of all, it's short. It's like 45,000 words. It's a primer. I think that my book will, will best serve the church as a primer, but I'm really grateful for other thinkers who are digging in deeper. Um, you know, I loved both of those books. Uh, the Brett McCracken, who um, is a friend, I thought his book was just, it was convicting for me, you know, yeah. on a very personal level, the wisdom, wisdom pyramid. And so I'm really happy right to see. Oh, there you go. I'm reading yeah. it right now, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy to see more and more writers kind of leaning in that direction. So if anything, you know, if I was a small part of sort of opening the floodgates of more thinkers kind of um, joining this conversation, then I, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be a, a small part of that. I have to laugh though. I got to admit this because your book had its official release date on March 31st, 2020, yeah. <laughs> about two weeks after 
Most yeah. of the U.S. went into extended lockdown and our digital lives went into overdrive. I already felt we were spending too much time. And then oh, yeah. it was like I was on a roller coaster that I could not get off. But when that came, when that happened, I mean, and your book came out, was your reaction like, yes, vindication or face palm? I mean, what what was it? Yeah, initially it was anxiety. I, I remember, you know, the release date for books gets set months and months, years even in yeah. advance. And so we had this release date for over a year. And then, yeah, you know, the beginning of 2020, we start hearing murmurings of this virus, this, you know, whatever. And uh, and then once we got to March, it became pretty clear that this was serious. And I distinctly remember um, our last Sunday worship gathering, I gave a one-off teaching from the book. And then we had received early copies of the book that we purchased and gave to everybody in the church. Mm-hmm. So we, I preached a sermon from Analog Church talking about why it's so important that we gather as the embodied church. And then that Thursday, four days later, I jump on all of our social media feeds and make a video saying, we're not gathering in person for a while. <laughs> and it was so strange and uh, peculiar. So honestly, I, yeah, I mean, our my publisher and I, we were nervous. We were nervous about it. You know, we considered delaying the release. But in hindsight, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful it came out when it did. It almost feels providential. And because um, if there was anything I would want to say, to that moment, you know, when we all went on lockdown and everything was online, uh, it would be what I say in this book. So in, in that way, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the timing. Mm. So I, I want to talk a bit more. Let's probe down into the book here, because the, the book really challenges us, challenges us to ask ourselves about this digital world that we all are in. Um, and some people would say, what's the big deal? OK, it's what you do with it. And I'm sure you you discovered this. I mean, we've seen some reports. I, I think of the social dilemma that came yeah. out on Netflix, where they're talking how this is not just it's not amoral anymore. Right. It's 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 taken on a whole life of its own. What yeah. is it doing to us? Because to, you you actually divided into three broad sections. You you talk about worship, community, and scripture. And Given the realities of the pandemic, how do you feel about that structure now? And is there anything yeah. you would have done differently? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that I would. I mean, some things have changed, but the the big broad stroke ideas in the book have, if anything, in the last year and a half for me, they've become more deeply entrenched because of what we've experienced in the last year and a half to two years. I think COVID and the pandemic and lockdown, they have affirmed for me Mm -hmm. um, some of the ideas I propose in the book, essentially that embodied people need embodied people, that God takes, uh, you know, dust uh, the stuff of earth, and he breathes life into it. He animates physicality. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, some things have changed, but not my perspective or my position on the matter. I think that church is still at its core, at its essence. What it means to be the church is to be the called out people of God who gather together shoulder to shoulder to do life together in ways that that we cannot possibly do online, that digital technologies cannot adequately mediate. And so, yeah, there's nothing about the book I would change. Uh, You know, if there's some stuff I would add, I mean, certainly the pandemic, you know, I I think my, if there's one thing that's, that's been different for me, my appreciation for digital when it's leveraged appropriately, uh, I have a deeper appreciation. I, I do sometimes think back to the last year and a half and wonder what would ha- what would it have been like had we not had the ability to at least text, phone call, Zoom, uh, you know, stream a sermon or some some thoughts we want to share with our people. We would have made it work. We would have figured out a way, uh, but the technologies gave us an opportunity to be a little more consistent, a little more effective. 
I think. But at the end of the day, what it's really done is it's for most people, I think it's deepened our awareness and increased our hunger for the real analog thing. So in, in a weird way, I'm, I'm actually grateful for that. What I'm ungrateful for and what I'm mostly concerned about is that the pandemic also rehabituated people. So mm -hmm. Sundays are now primarily for brunch and maybe watching a sermon at home and uh, our kids sports games. You know, so I think there's a lot of work to do moving forward for the church in um, compellingly, lovingly, but with conviction, uh, calling people back and helping people rehabituate into the rhythm of being a part of the gathered church. So there's work to do for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think deep at our core, the pandemic has, has deepened and heightened our awareness and our hunger for the real thing. So going, taking that into consideration that we have a hunger for the real thing. And I would definitely agree with you. And how you said it, uh, what was the term you used? Rehabituated them? Yeah. Is it rehabituated yeah. them into online church? And I, 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 I see that everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And people say, well, I don't need to go anymore. And yet there is that hunger that I think people have. However, they're not still willing to put away their devices mm -hmm. and and they have become more addicted to technology and more dependent just we all have i mean whether it's yeah. zoom what we're doing right now i think of my children in their school they are doing more stuff online than they ever have before and when i say no screen time i might as well ha have told them to cut their hand off in a way <laughs> that's what it feels like to them because that's the world they live in. That's where their friends are. That's they. That's where the schools want them to be. Even yeah. they have to go to things like Schoology to do their assignments. So much so that when we we relocated to Florida, that my daughter was shocked because her we try to have less screen time, and at her school they don't have computers as often, which was strange. But yet they wanted them to do everything on their phones through Schoology, and I yeah. thought how do I get away from this? I, I remember when I, I'm a little older than you are. And when my kids were quite young, I was in youth ministry too. And I thought, I'm never going to have a TV in my kid's room. I'm just never going to do that. I didn't want them to have that type of unfettered access. And then I look at it and I'm like, but, but at 11 or 12 years old, my son is his, he's the only kid in his class that doesn't have a tech. So, and he needs it for communication, whatever. And it, and it makes me angry every time I turn yeah. around. So this yeah. is such a pertinent discussion for so many people. But when you said, going back for a second, you said when technology is leveraged correctly. So let's let's stop there for a moment. What does technology leverage correctly? What does that really mean in your mind? What can we learn from that? Because we're not going to get rid of it. But I want to know the correct version before we can talk about the abuse of it and the changes we need to make going forward. So talk about yeah. that. Yeah, there's a lot to say there, but I think the simplest way for me to put it, I've come to the conviction that the appropriate leveraging of technology is primarily technology, digital technology, uh, leverage for the exchange of information. And that gets really dangerous, too, because... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, as we're recording this, there's a big news story about um, uh, Miss Haugen, who is a whistleblower from mm -hmm. Facebook. I don't know if people have been following that story, but what it's revealing is something that people have um, been, been, you know, I think subtly aware of for a long time and that big tech, social media companies in particular, um, they are very, they're deeply aware of how their algorithms perpetuate, uh, you know, dissent and division, even, even if it means um, through false information, you know, and, and the, the really insidious thing about it is uh, the reason these algorithms do that is because the data shows that that's what keeps people clicking and swiping and scrolling is anger and vitriol and division, you know, and that helps their bottom line. So you said this earlier, I agree with you, you know, actually, this is an answer to the question uh, you asked earlier. 
if there is something I would change, because I think my realization has changed in the book, Analog Church, I say, I think fairly emphatically that I believe technology is amoral, that it doesn't have an inherent morality, mm-hmm. and that it's all about how human beings misuse or abuse mm-hmm. the technology. Well, I, I wrote those words three, four years ago. What I believe now is that not with all digital technologies, but with social media in particular, there is an inherent morality being built into the mathematics, into the algorithm of some of these technologies. And it's to your point about your kids, like what they want is your child's and your and my attention and affection and allegiance. That's what they want because that's how they monetize. You know, Tristan Harris in The Social Dilemma he, he talks about this, and, and I cite him in my book as well. He's spoken very clearly and emphatically in recent years about the fact that in, on social media platforms, we think that they're free. We think that like we're consumers who are freely using a service. And the reality is nothing is free. And if something is free, it means you're the product. Right. Tristan Harris talks about how on social media, it feels like we're consuming for free because the reality is we're the products, we're the thing being sold. Our information, our preferences, what gets us going, it's being sold to big companies for advertising dollars on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and you know TikTok and everything else. So um, along those lines, I think you know it's really important uh, that we recognize our actual condition. Like it's a little bit like, you know, Neo in the Matrix or, um, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. You know, these people who believe that these shadows are reality, but the shadows are not reality. And that's kind of where we are in the digital age with social media. You know, we think we understand reality when in fact we don't, we're, we're chained. And we don't even know it. We don't even recognize we're slaves. And so we just kind of go about our lives staring at these shadows on the wall, thinking that's life. And it's not. It's not. And so uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. But for me, the appropriate leveraging of technology, getting back to the question, is to simply exchange information as accurately and as efficiently as possible. Anything outside of that, I think you tread into really dangerous waters. So digital technology for entertainment, uh, digital technology for community, um, for communion, you know, digital technology as the church. I mean, all of those things, they fall short. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner with them. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. I appreciate your book. I appreciate uh, Wisdom Pyramid because it, it tries to put it in the proper place. However, saying it is one thing. Stopping it is something altogether different and changing that when everyone around you is doing it. And I think that's the harder part. And when even the schools are not going against that and then see the church 
go into that territory where we have now internet churches, yeah. um, internet campus. I've, I've, I've seen that several times. It increased exponentially during COVID. What did, what then is your word to the, to the churches that have ventured in there into the place where it's not being leveraged correctly. And even then I'm not, I'm still not sure if I grasp that the exchange of information, I'm thinking of this dispassionate, like going to the grocery store. But when you say entertainment, I'm like, well, there goes me, you know, watching Val Kilmer say, I'm your Huckleberry (laughs) because I'm flipping through YouTube clips of something, but I feel that. And I, I like how one person said it, the internet's not real. It's just cotton candy. Yeah. It's a sugar fix. It's that dopamine, but it's still a real addiction where we're seeing treatment centers, especially in South Korea. Um, You were mentioned that you come from South Korea, but I've seen a lot of the addiction centers for people that uh, more in Asia than I've seen here yet, but it's made me stop and go. I I do. I I agree. I, I, I so agree, but that's not the common misconception. And I mentioned that to people and they roll their eyes at me. And then they pick out their phone, yeah. do it yeah. again. And I, I realize I'm arguing against people, but for myself, am I doing that? Hmm. And so the question is, is what the, I guess the question for me is, is not, how do I stop? I need your help. <laughs> but how do we reorient our brains yeah. to pursue an analog life, let's say, using the terminology that you've used for analog church, because we're not going to get rid of it entirely. How do we go about making that or executing that? Saying it in theory is, is great. Yeah. But doing it is something altogether different. So what are your recommendations to practically go about that? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I don't think there's an easy way. I don't think there's an easy path. I think there is only a path of uh, utter discipline and commitment. And I think it uh, is practical and it's practice-based. So having a digital rule of life essentially is I think the way. Uh, and I'm sure there are other ways, but that's the way that seems to work best for me and for my family. Uh, and seems to be most effective when I talk to other people who have tried to sort of live with a deeper awareness of what these technologies are doing and then respond to that. Yeah, I think having a digital rule of life is the way to go. Um, so Andy Crouch in his book, TechWise Family, you know, he offers some really helpful tips, uh, m- much of which has been really, really integral and helpful for my family. So it's simple stuff for us, like the charging station for our phones are in our kitchen and not in our bedrooms. So, um, and then Crouch actually recommends, and this has been so helpful for us. He says, you know, uh, treat your phone, especially, but all your digital technologies, the way you would treat a young child, whether you have a young child or not, if you're a parent. And what he means by that is put the phone to bed before you go to bed and wake up before the phone wakes up. So, pragmatically what that means for us is our phones don't uh, sit on our nightstands. They're not within arm's length, you know, get an alarm clock, like an old school, that's like a novel idea now, but you know, get an old school alarm clock that just wakes you up in the morning. Uh, And so that when you reach over in the morning, the first thing you grab isn't your phone. Um, Because we know what happens. Like if it's within Mm -hmm. arm length, it doesn't matter how much we tell ourselves we're going to change. The reality is you're going to open that thing up and check email or your calendar or social media, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, you know, And, and the moment you do that, you've already snapped your brain into a particular thing. It's like taking one lick of uh, ice cream. It's like, okay, you did it. You woke up and you licked the ice cream. You're not going to just let the thing drip all over your hands. Like, you know what's going to happen to you. Like, you started your day that way. So uh, in many ways, you know, this is where the wisdom pyramid is so helpful to me. I love Brett's um, sort of him making it analogous to the food pyramid, 
you know? Mm -hmm. So you have to start with the building blocks of good nutrition. And um, I think we have to order our lives that way. And uh, that's a matter of physicality, to be honest. Like it's Mm -hmm. a matter of actually leaving the things that we know will pull our attention away from the things that really matter. It's a matter of physically leaving them in places and spaces where they're beyond reach in those moments when we know um, we have to focus or the beginning of the day or the end of the end of the day when we know we want to start and end our days a particular way. So even during the day here at our church, one of the things we try to do a rule uh, that we have is like no phones in staff meetings, like literally phones don't come out, they're, they're not allowed to come out. And, you know, there's a lot of uproar, like, hey, what if my kid at school has an emergency and I got to, okay, like, I get that. But the reality is like, people live this way for centuries and centuries <laughs> up until 20 years ago. So relax, <laughs> you know, like everyone relax. Um, so there you go. Yeah, those are just a couple of thoughts. Okay. Now, um, you argue we can certainly communicate digitally, but we can only commune analog. Uh, you write that on one, page 109, but it seems like that lots of us did commune digitally during the pandemic, and perhaps not in the ways that we should like, not fully, but we did, and some still are. But why, why do you see such a hard division there? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll use kind of the example from COVID. I would say the way you knew you were really genuinely communing over Zoom was because you had a longing and a sense that this wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't wait to be together with this person. You know, when I travel, right? Like I'm gonna be out of town next week. I'm super grateful that I have FaceTime on my phone and that for three days, I'm gonna be able to FaceTime my wife and my kids. Uh, But the reality is when I FaceTime them, I'm so desperate to get back to them. And to like actually give them real hugs, you know, and and hold them in my arms and all of those things. That's communing. So communing digitally isn't, you know, it's not monolithic. It's not like because you're on a particular platform, it's impossible. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, What I do say in the book is that communing is about exchanging presence and not information. So communication is the exchange of information, data, whatever. But communing is the exchange of our actual presence. It's actually giving our whole bodied selves to another person. Um, You know, it was interesting to me uh, during COVID, uh, some people that I know, like friends, so desperately missed each other. They started setting up like Zoom dinner and movie nights where they would all hop on Zoom. These friends would hop on Zoom. They would all sit at their dining table and eat and everyone was eating on Zoom talking. And then they would leave the Zoom on and throw on a movie and sync it at the same exact time, like three, two, one, play. And then they'd all watch a movie together on Zoom. And it was interesting to me because one, it's so ridiculous to do such a thing. (laughs) if If those people had had the option of doing that in person, 10 times out of 10, they would have done it in person. But two, it actually was a way of communing online, but it was a way of communing because it was such a, there was such a deep visceral awareness that this wasn't ideal. And so, you know, to answer the question, it's not monolithic. I don't think it's like a hard line. You cannot commune on Zoom. I think my point is communing is the longing to give our presence to one another, not just information. It has, you know, it's actually connected to like active listening. We've all been in those environments where we're talking to somebody and they're looking at us and they're nodding their head and they're kind of giving us the, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. But you know, they're not really hearing you. They're just waiting for you to stop talking so that they can say the thing they want to say. That's communication. And that that's poor communication. But that's mm-hmm. essentially like 
That's just data exchange. The person is not giving you their whole self. They're not opening their heart, their mind, their soul to, to receive you and opening themselves to give you themselves. All they're really looking to do is say the thing they want to say, give you the information. That's communication, poor communication. But communing is, is similar to active listening. It's those moments when you open yourself up to give your whole self to another person. And those types of experiences are always analog or when they cannot be analog, there is a very clear, visceral, undeniable sense that if it could be analog, we would make it analog. Mm -hmm. Because it is, again, you run into, I think when you wanna give your whole self to another, you feel very viscerally the digital barrier. You know, it's again, when, when I FaceTime my wife and kids, I so, I so deeply want to hug them. You know what I mean? And like yeah. kiss my kids on the forehead. Like I yeah. so want that. And so in that way, I'm grateful for FaceTime. But ultimately at the end of the day, I'm longing to get back to them. Um, so there's, there's a lot to say there, but that, that's kind of one way I would explain the, the dichotomy. Do you think that the pandemic, while it has brought a greater dependence upon technology, do you think, though, that it's also brought a greater awareness of its insufficiency at the same time? I do. Yeah, I do for the reasons I just shared. Um, right. You know, for example, for me as a pastor and a church leader, we've got about 50% of our people who've come back to mm -hmm. church in person. And then we've still got a lot of people who are, you know, watching online and and uh, it's interesting to me because some of them haven't come back for like valid health concern reasons. Mm -hmm. And we could yeah. argue whether the, the concerns are valid or not. But what can't be argued is that some of these people really desperately want to come back, but they personally are still worried. They're still uncomfortable. COVID, you know, all of that. And so that that's valid. Um, but the people who have not come back and it's not like because they're concerned, they've just, again, been rehabituated. I actually think it's not because in-person doesn't matter. It's because what the separation from embodied church has revealed to them and about them is that the church was never really, it never took a, a, a primary role in their life, that they never really were all that in. You know, and I don't say that as a critique. Um, I, I say that with great sadness. You know, one of the things that's really sad for me is I think a lot and I think often about people who are marginal, people who are just starting to sort of explore the church, explore spirituality and Christianity when the pandemic hit, because they never had a chance to firmly, deeply entrench themselves in the life of our community. And my guess is that now, after a year and a half, because they were never really firmly entrenched, there's a very good chance that for many of them, they're just like, ah, I got better things to do on a Sunday. And that's really heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And it's not their fault. You know, it's not their fault. They just never experienced, they never tasted and saw how good it is to experience being deeply embedded in the people of God. Um, so ultimately, I think across the, the spectrum, those who've returned, those who have not, and those who were really marginal before the pandemic, I think what it's done is it's revealed to us uh, the things that took priority in our lives. And for those for whom the church was a priority, uh, you know, I can't tell you how beautiful it's been. You know, the first several weeks that we gathered, how many tears we saw in people's eyes because it was so life-giving to them and to me for us to just to be able to be in the same room singing together um mm -hmm. you know uh breaking bread and taking of the cup together um that kind of stuff man you, you just can't do that online mm -mm, not at all what do you hope then that your book will accomplish let's say that we we fast forward 10 years from now and as you said, it's a primer and hoping that these discussions continue. But what would you be, what would be your greatest hope for the book? 
I think my greatest hope for the book is to provoke deeper thought when it comes to what we think it means to be the church. Um, my, you know, the reason I wrote the book was to, it wasn't really just about technology. It was to ask the question, like, what is the church and what isn't the church? Like, what are we talking about when we say, I go to church or I am the church or I belong to a church? What does it mean to go to a thing or to be a thing or to belong to a thing? Like, what does that mean? And especially in the digital age, when the lines are being blurred in terms of what it means to go somewhere or go to a thing or to be a thing or to belong to a thing, you know, as the lines are being blurred, we have to get really clear about what the Bible means when it says um, you are the church, you know, you are to be the church. Uh, so that, that's my hope. I'm really grateful that I think some of that has happened. And like I said earlier, I'm really grateful that other thinkers, you know, men and women um, who have profoundly helpful thoughts and ideas that go far beyond my book are beginning to contribute to that conversation. I'm really grateful for that. So that, that's my hope is that I could have, again, been a first word in the conversation and uh, help us to provoke uh, provoke deeper thought, you know, and help us to think more deeply about, about the church and what it means to be the church. Well, I want to recommend the book. I know we, we are short on time today, but I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. How can we let people know about what you're doing so they can follow along and learn more about your ministry and, and, and what God's called you to be and do? Yeah. Th well, thanks so much for having me on, Travis. It's been super fun. And uh, I could have talked about Steph Curry and donuts for another hour. <laughs> Sometimes you know, that, it doesn't seem like those go together. <laughs> that'll be uh, that'll be uh, another 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 conversation. conversation. Another conversation. Um, yeah, thank you for the kind words about the book. That's that's uh, really really encouraging and humbling. Um, yeah, I have a little website called jkimthinks.com, and that's also you know um, you can find me on on Twitter, Instagram there, and. Uh, but yeah, the website and all the digital technology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm just a giant, like a physical address, so people can physically write you letters. <laughs> That's right. Go that, that way. <laughs> come Go to, to my farm. Way. Come to my farm and help me churn butter. <laughs> That's how I connect to people. Just it's uh, in the countryside of Pennsylvania. I'll send you the address and come visit. No cars, just you know, horse and buggy, and. Uh, yeah. Okay. Just uh, full, full disclosure, I grew up with Amish people. So yeah, I'm not Amish, but <laughs> I grew up in Illinois, where Illinois actually has its own Amish community. We had 5,000 Amish. So I went to school with Amish wow. kids. So that's wow. very real to me when you're saying that. I can see the buggies and we had buggies at our grocery store and Dollar General. And yeah, yeah. anyway, keep going. That's it's kind fun. of that's kind of awesome. I'm joking about it, but it's kind of awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, no, just jkimthinks.com. And uh, all my stuff is there and, and uh, my email address is there. So I'd love to hear from you if you want to chat, whoever you are. And so there you go. Okay. Well, thank you, Jay, for coming on the show. It was a real joy to have you on Apollo Watered. Yeah, absolutely, Travis. Thanks again. Such a relevant conversation for every one of us today. I'm excited to delve into this subject more because it affects every single one of us. As we live in this digital world and more and more of our lives become disembodied, it's important that we don't forsake actually meeting together. Just as Jay said, technology can be very good if we're leveraging it correctly or it could communicate meaning and do the opposite thing that it was intended to create. What I mean is, if you're in a room and everyone is staring at their phones and not talking to each other, what is that saying? Phones are meant to actually connect people. But it comes to the point in time where it's so saturated that it actually causes people to disconnect. And that's not a good thing. If we're meant to truly bring people together, then we need to find ways to actually be together. And if we were to paraphrase Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together in person, as some do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Or 2 John 
verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use the streaming service in Zoom. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face and not screen to screen so that our joy may be complete. We need embodied fellowship because God made us to crave being with people. And that can be that can't be satisfied online. It may give us a small relief for a time. But only true physical embodied fellowship with handshakes and hugs, coffee and tea with people caring enough to be vulnerable and open can really help fill the fellowship void we were built for. Thanks for listening today. For those that have been wondering, our Watering Wednesday episodes will return in the new year. We've been so busy trying to raise funds to close out our year in order to give you the best content to water your world. And I want to extend an invitation to you. If this episode has helped you, would you consider partnering with Apollos Watered? We are in our Ready to Fly giving campaign where we are looking for 80 new giving partners before the end of the year. And here's an incentive. For those new partners, we will be giving you an Apollos Water Drop Logo t-shirt. Sign up and someone from our team will be in contact with you to get your information. And for those who have already partnered with us, we couldn't be where we are today without you. We're on the runway, but we need your help to get into the air. And if we are helping you so that you are watering your world, then please consider partnering with us. And let us know how we're helping water your world. We'd love to have more people grow from connecting with Apollos Watered. If you've been impacted while listening to a podcast, would you do me a favor and screenshot the podcast, text it to a friend, share it on your stories, or simply share it directly from your podcast platform. Subscribing and leaving a review also puts it out there for more people to see. And remember, there's also content on Instagram, Facebook, and our website that is shareable, and there will be more coming in the new year. Together, let's leave a trickle of truth and encourage encouragement around the world so that we can all watch people grow together. Much thanks to our Apollos Water team of Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.